Today's sermon is coming from uh, Luke chapter 24. Uh, Before we get there, I want to let you know where we're at in our series in case you're uh, visiting for the first time or uh, second or third or hundredth or five hundredth. Here we are in the middle of our eight-week series on week number eight of the eight characteristics of a disciple maker. What happened is our church wants to be intentional about basically turning our hearts outward, not just being inward focused, but looking to have our lives spill over into the lives of others and encourage and influence them and make disciples. And so the pastoral team, along with the elders, developed what they thought were eight characteristics. Now, of course, you could come up with a hundred characteristics, but these are broad categories into which others may fit, and you'll see through the definitions that Uh, They include other things as well. But generally speaking, if you're doing these eight things, way to go. I mean, great work. This is a big task. So here we are this week on week number eight. And this one is entitled, Fulfilling God's Global Mission. Fulfilling God's Global Mission. Definition that follows, you can see, goes like this. Investing time, talent, and treasure to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, showing compassion to the poor and shepherding others to do the same. Now again, there's a lot of things covered in this, and so this morning I'm not going to go through each one. What's it look like to do your time? What's it look like to do your talent? What's it look like to do your treasure? You know, blah, 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 acts of compassion, etc. We're not going to go through every single one, but instead what I want to do is take a sort of a bird's eye view or a higher level overview of what it means to fulfill God's global mission. In other words, basically what I'm hoping this morning is that as a result of this sermon, you will be inspired and encouraged to live missionally. In other words, to live on a mission. Now, if you take that out of the spiritual realm and you say, what does that look like in the physical realm? I I think we can get there pretty quick. Nobody goes on a mission to lose, right? You don't join the Marines to be in supply. (laughs) That's just the way it works. You want to be out there and conquer and win. You join in order to be a success. So living on mission, basically, neatly summarized, means living victoriously. You want to win. Living missionally means winning. In your daily life, you want to win in nearly everything you do. It's not because you're, you know, this perfectionist, obsessive competitor it's because generally speaking people enjoy success when things go well you're like all right cool that worked out we want to win we want to live victoriously so today what i'm going to say now funneling off of that so god's global mission living missionally means living victoriously what does living victoriously mean you know because you can go to a bunch of you know, self-help gurus, you can go online, you can listen to Oprah, you can listen to whoever, you can be inspired, but what does it look like from a biblical definition, from what we believe the God of creation says, to live victoriously? What does victorious living look like? I think I can answer that for you this morning. And this is where this becomes a radical and transformative sermon. Victorious living means living vicariously. What is victorious living? 
The theme for today is victorious living is living vicariously. Living victoriously means living vicariously. Well, that's kind of weird, Pastor Jeremy. Because I, you know, flip the channels, I'm not obsessed or whatever, but I've seen some self-help gurus, and what they tell me is actually is the exact opposite. In fact, it feels a little bit like spring, and so no doubt if you're like our family, which you may or may not be, doesn't matter, but we're starting to think about spring activities, and one of those is spring soccer. And so no doubt the soccer people start sending you emails, and they're like, sign up soon, don't miss the deadline, blah, blah, blah. But another email they send out is this. Dear parents, if you have a kid who plays soccer, please don't yell and scream and cuss out the referee and run out in the field and tackle somebody. This is not appropriate behavior. We want to encourage sportsmanship. In other words, don't spill too much energy into this thing. It's blood, sweat, and tears to be sure, but you can't live vicariously through your children and their sports activities. I know, I know, you would have been in the NBA if only your parents had done that for you. But it's highly unlikely that your children have that high of a chance of success. No offense, but they're one in a million. And what ends up happening is you follow these things and you watch, and boy, poor kiddo, you know, they get yelled at and screamed at, and they're going to 50 different practices a week, late in the evening and early in the morning, and mom and dad are putting all this pressure on them, and they're burnt out and they're miserable, and then... By the end of their high school career, they're like, I am done with sports. That's it. You know, I hate this stuff. Because the parents are trying to live vicariously or live through their children. Well, we're just doing it for their good. You know, we're we're blah, 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 blah. Now, I'm painting one end of the extreme. I know that there are good sport parents, too. I fully get that. We, we encourage physical activity. We want them to be recreational. We want them to engage in the outdoors and enjoy the stewardship of the body God has given them. No, no questions. I'm not against sports. But we know just from experience there are those dads who, you know, grab the face shield of their sons and are up in their face and yelling and cussing and screaming and they're saying, well, I just want him to be his best, you know, and he struck out. So, right, yeah. So there's victorious living. Or not victorious living, excuse me, not victorious, living vicariously through their children. And then there's other types of vicarious living, like if if you don't have children, some people, or even if you do, what they'll do is they'll live vicariously through other successful adults. They'll see this person and they'll look at them and say, wow, that's awesome, I wish I were them. Look at how they succeed every time, oh, to be them. And they get wrapped up in it. Sometimes you see this, I think, maybe not, but I... Perhaps it's a cultural thing I don't understand, but you look at England and their admiration for royalty and other things like this, and people just swoon and fall down, or for the States, maybe it's rock stars or athletes or whatever, but we like to see victory happen. Even if we're not rooting for this team, there's some sort of fulfillment in it, and so people long for it, and sometimes mistakenly step over the line and begin to identify with that person. So you see it in sports, you see it in recreation, entertainment, royalty, whatever. But I'm actually going to say to you this morning that there is, uh, there is in fact one kind of victorious living that's acceptable. Now, before I do though, let me uh, preface it like this. Here's what the self-help gurus say uh, regarding this type of vicarious living. 
One guy says it like this. He says, whenever I found someone doing something interesting, I'd start to follow them closely and picture myself in their shoes, experiencing the success they were having and enjoying their adventure. It was fun at the beginning, thinking about making a huge change in my life, but then I'd remind myself that it just doesn't work like that in the real world. So I'd go back to my daily routine, searching for someone else to follow. That was a depressing cycle to fall into. Now he says this. Here's his advice to you. There's nothing wrong with feeling proud for someone to be impressed with their accomplishments. But, now this is his, his advice, I think you start to lose pieces of your own identity when you let your self-worth come from the achievements of others. It slowly degrades your own ambition and erodes the confidence in your own ability to achieve great things. If you're living vicariously, stop it. Get out and live for yourself. Vicariously means that you're experiencing something indirectly like when your friend's adventure feels like your own. Now, as I read this definition, I think I know where he's coming from. But in every way, I would starkly disagree. There is, in fact, a third kind, not like the first, sports or other successful adults, but a third that leads to success. This is vicariously identifying with or living through and in Christ. This kind of vicarious living, and only this kind, leads to victory. Now, the rest of this sermon is going to explain to you what I mean by that. So, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to do it in a couple different ways. We'll show it to you up on the screen. So, if you don't have a Bible, you can just read it. If you, do, if, if you came in this morning, it's your first time, and you don't have a Bible, we've got blue Bibles at the back. You can just keep one of those, take it home, and bring it back next week. And there, there's a Bible. But today, we're looking at verse 36, and it says this. Luke chapter 24, 24th chapter of the book of Luke, beginning in verse 36. It says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, the same Jesus who is crucified, the same exact one, that Jesus, that very one, stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It is I. In other words, I am. The same I am that Moses heard Yahweh say from the Mount of Sinai, I am. I am myself, God. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then, verse 44, this is the missional component beginning here in this paragraph. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, in other words, the whole Testament, all of that must be fulfilled. Then, here's the best New Testament exegesis, master's, master's level course you've ever had in your whole life. 
Jesus Christ himself opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wow, what a teacher that would be. This is what he said. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's his summary of the Old Testament. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. There's the New Testament. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But look at this. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, as I read this text, there's all kinds of crazy cool stuff in there. And we could go left and right all morning long tracing rabbit trails, and I don't have time to do that. But there's one thing in particular that really jumped out to me, something that just drove God's message home to my heart all week long and was stirring in me nonstop. And that is this. When Jesus says to his disciples, hey, I'm going to explain everything to you. The whole Old Testament. Here it is. Summing it up. What would that be? There's a lot of options. You know, as we pursue the Old Testament, let's pretend we don't have the new and we start to follow the track of progressive revelation as things are gradually, successively, and exponentially revealed. And we start to follow those and we say, okay, this is interesting. What's going to happen? Well, here are some things. Isaiah tells us there's going to be a virgin birth. Now, that's pretty cool. That doesn't happen every day. In fact, I don't know of it ever happening, <laughs> except in this instance. This is a big deal. What's going on? How can a virgin give birth? Micah tells us that there's a specific city, a little doinky one that's not really that significant, that all of a sudden is going to have the king of the world. That's unusual. At the very beginning, when there is blessing given upon the children of Israel, one is told that from him the eternal king would come. Well, that's interesting. David is told that from his line there will be a ruler who will never leave the throne. Well, there's a good promise. Rachel is told that at some point she's going to be weeping. Well, in a prophecy, she's going to be weeping for her children. What does that mean? So many things. And if I asked you the question this morning, hey, tell me some Old Testament things that you think might refer to Christ or are leading up to him, you could probably come up with a pretty long list of your own. Wow, look at all these prophecies. Look at all these things that Jesus fulfilled. These are cool. This is like one in a bazillion. This is impossible. And so when Christ sits down with his disciples, you know, if if you're into this sort of thing, you probably want to ask him, hey, uh, how did this happen? How how does this work out? This doesn't make sense. And yet he leaves, apparently, at least from this text, perhaps he did in another moment, but he leaves all those things behind, and what is left for us is this. What is left when Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God, Yahweh in the flesh, summarizes the Old Testament, says, thus it was written, here it is, that the Christ should suffer and rise. That's it. Two verbs, two words, suffer and rise. Why in the world is this the only bit of information that Jesus gave to him? Suffering 
and resurrection. That's significant. As I look at this question, what becomes apparent as you read the book of Luke and also the book of Acts, which are both his, is that when Luke refers to suffering, it refers to Jesus' death. It's a sort of a euphemistic way of saying that. And so you have Jesus' death and his resurrection as being the two things that Jesus emphasizes. I'm going to structure the whole sermon this morning around the answer to that question. And basically we're going to do it in two parts. Um, In a sense, here's the structure. One is that you could say the first answer is sort of the theological, the philosophical, or the eternal, or the judicial, or the legalistic. It's basically the why from a reasoning standpoint for justice and mercy. And then the second answer, B, is for the practical sake. Why did he give us only these two things? For daily life. So the first, the first thing we'll walk through is the justice and mercy. And the second is for daily life. So why only death and resurrection? First of all, for justice and mercy. Now, when my family goes to Meyer, I don't know what it's like for you, but sometimes I have children in tow. And inevitably what that means is, Hey, can I have this? Can I have that? Look at that. Look at this toy. Cool. You know, Meyer has got it figured out, right? We walk down the aisle, and all of a sudden, oh, there's Elsa, you know? Oh, pretty. You know, like, stop it. <laughs> right? You can't have Elsa, <laughs> says the wicked dad of the West or whatever. No. <laughs> but another way I could do that is I could say, well, guys, let's walk through this experience. Okay, so there's something you want made of plastic, made wherever, going to break in a few weeks. But how much does it cost? Okay. How much do you have? All right. Have you earned it? Have you saved? Have you given? Okay, now are in your position to buy this. Okay, you think you've got enough money. All right. Well, let's take a look. Oh, that says it's $35. You only have five. What are we going to do? You're stuck. Or, yeah, You've got 50, you've saved 15, maybe you're in a good spot. Okay, we'll consider that. But you need to understand, blah, 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 blah. And I walk them through it, and then we go to the cash register and say they're going to purchase it. What happens is they don't just run out the store with a toy, but instead there's a transaction that has to take place. Something has to happen for this exchange to be made. And so they walk up and they say, I want this. And the cashier says, okay, that will cost you this. And they say, okay, here's my money. Bang, and they put it down. There's an exchange that takes place. And then they receive the product, and a receipt is given as proof of that transaction. That, my friends, is what happens to you theologically, judicially, legally, or philosophically when you come to Christ. What happens is this, in your first salvific or salvation experience, you're like, okay, wow, I realize there is something that I want, <laughs> you know, and that's God, and he's bigger than me, and there's a price on that. The problem is this, you come up to the cashier and you're like, hey, I'd like that, and she's like, that'll be a bazillion dollars, and you're like, I don't have it. She's like, well, you can work on it. Well, I never can, I couldn't earn it. Even if I tried the rest of my life, I'll never make that much money. 
nothing I can do. This is beyond all the billionaires in the entire world. God's perfection is so great, you cannot get there. And then someone else right behind you in line, whose name happens to be Jesus, says, no worries, I've got it covered. I can pay for that because I have enough righteousness credited to my account. Consequently, I will give that or impute it to you from the outside. You are not going to earn it from inside of you, but I bring it to you from the outside. You're like, okay, I'll take it. You bet. Free gift. Cost you everything. Cost me nothing. That's a good deal. (laughs) I'll take it. And Jesus gives us that righteousness. Then that righteousness is paid on behalf of our sin. There's a transaction that takes place. As a result, we receive the free gift of eternal life, God's righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit is the seal or receipt of the transaction of that deal. And it is stamped upon us. Bang. Transaction complete. We now walk out with God's righteousness in our hand whom Jesus paid on our account or our behalf. That's what happens in this justice and mercy thing, in this death and resurrection. See, if there's no death, there's no payment. No money ever came across the table. When you sin, the wages of sin or the cost is death. So if no death is paid, there's no transaction that can take place. Jesus' death takes your spot. He pays for it for you. There's the death. But if it's only death, big deal. We don't ever get anything coming across the table. But if the death has gone across and then the resurrection has come out, now there is new life and we have received a free gift and we take it and we walk away. And the Holy Spirit is the imprint upon our heart sealing that transaction. He's the receipt of the deal. And so we walk away and we're like, yes, justice and mercy both fulfilled in this one instance. In other words, death and resurrection are to the Christian life, the salvation experience, what hydrogen and oxygen are to water. They're absolutely essential elements. They are the core components of our salvation. There must be death and resurrection. Death and resurrection fulfill God's requirement for justice and mercy. So here is the transaction summary. This is what it means for justice and mercy. Now justice and mercy are important. Look, you go through life and you see bad things that happen. Six people get shot and you're like, what in the world? This is crazy. Something was wrong here. Justice needs to occur. You, as a human being, have the internal longing for justice. You may not want it for yourself, but you do want it for others. There is a recognition that there has to be justice. And so we play this out. God put it on our hearts. And we say, okay, death and resurrection, it takes, it takes care of that. It does both. It provides justice, while at the same time offers mercy. Behold, the justice and the mercy of God. Death and resurrection. Now, that's the heady part, but let me give you the practical part as well. It is heady, but it is essential, and it's essential for your heart. Why death and resurrection? Well, for justice and mercy, but also for daily life. 
Let me illustrate to you what this looks like, first of all, with my hands. Because I don't know how to do it any other way, and I couldn't come up with a good drawing or graphic. It just wasn't that creative. So I'm going to do it with my hands. So you got to watch my hands. All right? Ready? No. Just kidding. Okay. This is how we do it. So imagine, you know, before, let's imagine a time if you've been, if you've came to Christ, pretend like this was a long time ago. If you haven't, this will be cool. This will be a new thing for you. Watch how this works. So imagine this. The Bible, okay, so this is going to be you and this is going to be Jesus. You, Jesus, right? Got it? Ring is you, no ring is Jesus, okay? All right. So you, the Bible tells us, are dead as a result of sin in your trespasses. So you're dead. Look dead? Pretty good. All right. There's dead. All right. You're dead. You're dying. You're decay. You're rot. You're not like, um, you know, in a coma or anything else like this. Your heart is stopped. Your brain is stopped. Everything is dead. Now, what happens is Christ, the good shepherd, our Savior and Lord, comes along and says, Lord, you've given me some sheep and I'm going to go pluck them and get them out. Oh, there's one. And he sees that they're dead. He comes to them and he unites himself with them. So, bang, he joins them. Okay? This is the spiritual or mystic union of Christ. Christ just comes and joins you in your death. Then, from your death, what he does is he pulls you up and out and elevates both, because you are united, both you and him to the cross. Bang, bang. You're both nailed there. You are now nailed to the cross with Christ because you're dead. And that's the wages of sin is death, and that's what you get, crucified. You are united with him, and now you are crucified with him. You're on the cross. Then, as you know, he dies. And so you and he are still united together, and you go into the grave with him. Boom. And you are buried. Okay, the dirt is piled on top, the stone is closed, however you want to think of it, you're buried. All right, you're buried with Christ. But then... Christ, in his deity, by the grace of God the Father, raises him from the dead. Now, here's the amazing thing. When you're still dead, just like you were, even though you're crucified, what Christ does is this. He says, okay, now it's time for me to raise from the grave. I'm going to resurrect. I'm taking you with me. But, only the good part of you. And we're leaving all the bad stuff there in the grave so that your old self is crucified and dead and killed and your new self is coming to life again. And so what he does, in a sense, if you could imagine that I had three hands, which I don't, he rips this hand apart and leaves the dead sinful self in the grave and pulls out the new you. And just like Christ is resurrected perfect in bodily form, so too are you coming forth from the grave. Now you are free to walk. Imagine one hand still in the grave. You are free to walk in the newness of life. And you are united with Christ. And so Christ starts walking and he says, okay, this is the way we're going to go. And this is the way we're going to go. Stick with me. Stay close. Hold on. You're getting distracted. Wait, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. And there you are walking with Christ. Now, what happens in your daily life? As you know, and as I know, sometimes there's some distractions. You're like, woohoo, that looks cool. Hey, wait, I'm starting to have memories of that, some of that sin stuff. That's kind of fun. I like that. Maybe I can just sneak over here and 
pull some of that back out. You know, you start to dig a little bit. And Christ's like, come on, are you coming? You're like, no, I'll be right there, hold on. Like, yeah, right, I know what's going on here. You know, we're digging again. I've seen it before. You're digging. You're like, I don't find that old self. I want to pull him out. That was fun self. That was good stuff I like. Please me. Who cares about everybody else? This is for me. I'm taking a moment. Here we go. You start digging and digging and digging. Eventually you get down to that corpse. And man, you're like, ha, 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 this is great. Love it. Ha, ha, I don't love it. I'm dirty. I'm alone. I'm scared. I'm lost. It's dark. It's cold. It's wet. Where am I? Help, somebody get me out. And you're surrounded by sin and muck. And you're afraid that the walls are going to start collapsing in on you and you'll be buried again, dead. And it's not where you want to be. And at that point, you cry out and you're like, oh, help. And you find that Jesus is just right up there. He reaches his hand down and he pulls you out of the grave again. And he dusts you off and cleans you up and says, come on, let's try that again. Go this way. You wanted to be dead, but you really can't be dead anymore because I brought you back to life with me. I'm not ever going to be dead again. So neither are you. Get going. (laughs) Okay, yes, sir. And you go. And you try to go back and he pulls you out. And you try to go back and he pulls you out. And you know, it's it's three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. But you keep moving. And this is the Christian life. God walks with you along the way. See, you've been united with him in death. And raised with him to walk in the newness of life. And he says, don't go back to your sin. You don't want to be buried again. Come with me. But anytime you do, he says, hey, no worries. I'll clean you up. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Here we go. This is it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is Romans chapter 6. One of the most profound and beautiful texts in all of Scripture. Why? Death and resurrection. Why do we care? Can't you give me three steps to like raising my kid? I'm a dad right now. It's crazy. I want to know how do I do this? What's going on? They're going to be teenagers. They're, yeah. What? Nope. He just talks about death and resurrection. Well, that's not practical. That's theological. That's as practical as it gets. Every single day in your life, you're going to experience this. Sin is going to come after you, and you've got to say, no, I'm dead to that. That's in the grave. Jesus crucified that on the cross. He killed it. I don't want that dead piece of junk. I want to live in the newness of life. Tempted again. Nope, dead. Temptation, dead. Dead, 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 dead. Dead. I am dead to that. But I I used to want to... Those desires are dead. I have a new passion. I have a new ambition. I have a new goal. I'm dead to that. Don't give me any more of that. Give me this. Give me Christ. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Here's our life now. Should we continue in that sin stuff so that we can get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, it's just a metaphor here, baptized, he uses baptized, I use my hands, baptized into Jesus, were baptized into his death? Look at this, verse 4. We were 
buried with him by baptism into death, or the hand thing, or whatever you want to call it. In order that, look at these two parallel lines. They're directly parallel. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We were united with him in this process. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I'm going to keep going with these slides in a second. But here, here's the thing. You know, we think of Jesus and we're like, Jesus, crucified and risen. That's Jesus. You know what you should think? Me. I'm crucified. I'm risen. Well, that's kind of radical, isn't it? I actually wrote a note to the elders this week and just said, hey, hang on here, don't worry, I'm going to do something Sunday, it's going to be okay, I promise. (laughs) And I almost signed that, crucified and risen, Jeremy. And I thought, man, these guys do not know what I'm talking about, you know? If I say, I'm crucified and risen, what are you saying? That you're the Lord? No, but I'm in Him. And as I am in Him, so too am I experiencing this vicariously. Through Christ, I am crucified and risen. Vicariously. Spiritually united with him, I experience his death and resurrection. As a result, now I can walk in the newness of life. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that old bad yucky stuff, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing. It's done so that we can no longer be enslaved to that junk, for the one who has died has been free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, so we don't have to either. Therefore, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives for God. So, verse 11, here's why death and resurrection. So you also must consider yourselves vicariously. Consider yourselves. Live through him. Vicariously identify with him. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as a result, verse 14 tells us, verse 14 says, Sin will no longer, verse 14, have dominion over you since you are not under law but by grace. When you vicariously identify with Jesus Christ, sin's got nothing on you. It does not own you. It cannot own you and it will not own you. You belong to someone else. 1 Corinthians tells us you are not your own. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It belongs to God. You don't own you. He does. He bought you. The transaction occurred and it is complete, sealed and witnessed by the Holy Spirit. Living vicariously is the key to missional and victorious living. It means a radical reorientation and a dynamic new identity. You no longer identify with yourself, but instead with someone else vicarious living that is why i would say to you this morning i completely disagree with the self-help gurus 
who say this, listen to this statement. I think you start to lose pieces of your own identity. Good! I want to! When you let your self-worth, self-worth? I don't want self-worth. That goes up and down based on my performance and expectations. I want Christ-worth, image of God-worth. Come from achievements of others. I want it to come from the achievement of Christ. It slowly degrades your own ambition. Well, I hope so. I don't want to have any more of my own for the rest of my life. It erodes the confidence in your own ability. Good. (laughs) Be gone with me. I want to lose me and gain Christ. Absolutely, this is exactly what I want to do. This is the whole point of Christianity is us dying and being raised with Christ. And thus, when he explains it to his disciples, he doesn't start with parenting tips or marriage tips or grow church tips or anything else. He just says death and resurrection. Here are the core elements or essential ingredients to your everyday life. How do you do life? doesn't matter what time period you're in. First century, second, third, 21st, whatever. It's all the same. You die to the old self. And you raise with Christ. And when that sin comes creeping up after you and tries to pull you back, you say, nope, dead, 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 dead. With Christ. With Christ, with Christ, with Christ. Now, I think I've just given you the formula for successful Christian living. Death plus resurrection equals victory. Equals victory in Jesus, equals victory in us. We don't just leave Jesus out there. We identify with him. We get the victory too. So what's going to happen? Are you going to go home? All right, woo, got it. Pastor Jeremy says death and resurrection. That's the key. Here we go. Sin again. Stink. It didn't work. Pastor Jeremy is wrong. This whole thing's a waste of time. What's going on? Come on. That's no fun. Here's the thing. It's a little bit like this. My neighbors are in this room, so they know I have a chainsaw. (laughs) Correction. I had a chainsaw. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what happened? Yeah, I know. You're rejoicing. Some are saying amen. (laughs) What happened is this. Is I, I have, you know, property, and it's got... Well, not big property, but, you know, trees. I live on Timber Drive. Next street is Evergreen. The one around it's Woodview Pass, okay? There's a lot of trees. So my gutters are gunked up. Roots are going into my foundation. There's no grass growing in the backyard. I want my kids to be able to play soccer. I don't want to hit a stump every time I mow, et cetera, et cetera. I'm trying to clean up things a little bit and sort of cultivate it. Trees, you stay in your place. People will stay in ours, okay? Here's how we're going to do it. Shade, yes, but overgrown, no. So I start to cultivate a little bit, and I've cut down a few trees, and uh, I'm doing okay, but each I start small, and I'm working bigger, and each tree, little saw, okay, yeah, did all right for a while. I need a bigger saw, you know? So I go back, exchange it, sorry, I need a bigger one. Going after a bigger tree. And I keep working up until eventually I've got some pretty good-sized trees, and... I've got, by now, I've gone through, like, the cheap brand, and then I got an Echo, and eventually I'm into a still chainsaw, right? Like, I'm like, let's go, baby. Got a still. I'm all excited about this supposedly awesome Mercedes-Benz of chainsaws. Well, I go cutting down some trees, you know, and I did it successful for a while, and then I put it up and had to wait. And it's getting near winter time, and I'm thinking, okay, let me get my last tree or two down or whatever before winter, and then... 
you know, we're good to go. But I also remember talking to the guy at the shop, and he said, hey, if you're going to winterize your saw, there's a couple different ways to do it. And the way that was most attractive to me, now I'm not a mechanical expert, so don't try this at home, but was with this recreational fuel for uh, RV vehicles and other stuff where it doesn't have any water or additives, supposed to be like pure gas. You have to go out to some little city and buy it from a special place. So I went and did that 20 minutes away, bought it, put it in my saw, came home like, yeah, I got it winterized. Sweet. Uh, You know, I put the fuel in. I'm like, yes, got it winterized. We're doing good. I'm like, yeah. A few months later, I'm like, I should cut down that last tree. Somebody's like, what? (laughs) What? So I go out there and I start my saw and brrr, you know, I'm cutting down that last tree. I'm doing great and I'm working hard all day long trying to beat the sun. And by the end of the day, I'm like cranking on that saw and it's not starting, it's not starting. What is going on here? I put the fancy fuel in. It should be working great, even better than the cheap stuff. Hmm. What didn't I put in? Oil. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. So I go back to the shop, and it's a still. I'm hoping for good things, right? I'm like, I got my saw. It's not working anymore. And the guy pulls on it. It's like, shh. Like, what happened to the saw? <laughs> uh, that's a good question, sir. <laughs> He's like, did you put oil in it? He looks at me like, you ruined one of my saws. <laughs> and I'm like, bought it come on no no nothing stopping there done Saul's burnt up I'll give you five bucks for it how do I explain this to my wife (laughs) this is not good I just burn up this expensive saw the whole time she's saying why do you want to chase all those trees (laughs) oh man oh boy bad day whose fault was it mine. I forgot to put the oil in the saw. See, the saw is a good saw. It's a, you know, Mercedes-Benz with chainsaws or whatever. It works as long as the lubricant is in it. It's fine. It's going to run like that guy says forever. Yeah. I forgot to put in the oil. Holy Spirit, Word of God, is the lubricant in your life. I'm telling you this morning, This death and resurrection thing, this is a good saw. It works all the time. All the time. It works 100%. But you have to apply the oil. You have to grease the wheels. You have to apply it to your heart. If you don't, you're going to burn out. It's not going to work. You're going to see that sin coming. You're like, I can do it. I can do it. And you don't apply Holy Spirit. You don't apply the Word of God. Boom. You're going to blow a gasket. Done. Failure. Epic. And the thing about the oil is, it's not a one-time application, is it? This is an expensive illustration. <laughs> but hopefully it will save you a few knocks as well. Look, you got to apply and reapply and apply and reapply and oil and grease and oil and grease over and over and over and over again. It doesn't quit. The saw's still good. The death and resurrection are still effective, but unless you apply this to your life on a daily basis in an incarnational and you sort of way, in every little incident, this happens, this happens, that happens, this happens, every time, dead, walking with Christ, dead, 
walking with Christ. Dead. I have to change my attitudes, my desires, my time, my talent, my treasures, my stewardship, my entire mission changes. Every time I apply the death and resurrection. Is the death and resurrection of life or of Christ vicariously identified and applied to us that give us the secret to victorious living in each and every instance? There's a time something burns out, then don't blame it on the saw. Come back and reapply the bone. You're stuck, you need pulled out, fine, God will help. But the end deal is this. If you have died with Christ, then you have also been raised with him. For Colossians tells us, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then Galatians, Paul says it like this. Here's, here's it summarized in one verse. I've been crucified with Christ, up on the cross with Jesus. That's vicarious dying. But now, as a result of his death and resurrection, is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The oil is flowing through my veins of the Holy Spirit of God, which is soothing me, transforming me, and changing me, and making it possible for me to live victorious in each and every situation. Now, I'm not saying I'm there yet. I'm a pastor, and if you see me up here on Sunday, you might think I'm perfect until I preach a bad sermon, and you'll know better. If you follow me around throughout the week, you'll see that I'm a person just like you, and it's hard. This is a work in process. But we keep going and don't quit. For Christ has been crucified and we are identified with him. Christ's death and resurrection, listen to this, it is the heart of the gospel. It's the basis for the mission. It's the foundation of our movement. And it is the key to victorious living. Only when his death and resurrection are at work in us will we have the power and success to complete the mission. You want to live victoriously? Then you have to live vicariously. Father, we're so thankful for the work you did in your son. And we're just begging you and praying and asking and hoping that that work will be alive and active in us.